of Isaiah, chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. As we said, Isaiah is uh, just a fascinating book. The first 39 chapters, which, which are 39 books of the Old Testament, which correlates with the 39 books of the Old Testament, uh, deals with the judgment of God. And then we see in chapter 40 the, through 66, the last 27 chapters deal with the comfort of God and the comfort of the Messiah coming. It's all centered around the Lord Jesus coming. And we see that uh, in that, uh, it's really you can divide those 27 chapters into three different nine, uh, nine chapter segments of the first, the chapters, 48 through, uh, chapters 40 through 48 deal with the superiority of God over the nations, over idols, and over uh, history. Uh, God uh, controls the affairs of men. Then we see in chapters 48 through 57, the suffering Messiah and the suffering servant. Now can the Lord be both king and Messiah and sufferer and sacrifice? And so we see that this was uh, the great mystery. This was the problem that the, uh, that the Old Testament had, prob- had um, they could not figure out how to, how to, that it could be both surf- sufferer and yet savior and king. And so this was the great mystery, the great contradiction that many that has been called, how that the Lord could be both. And we see that in chapters 49 through 57. And then in chapters 58 through 66, we have the superiority, excuse me, the sovereignty of the Lord as he will be king of kings and the Lord of lords. But in the, right in the middle of these chapters, 13 chapters before, 13 chapters after, you have the 14th uh, chapter, uh, which is chapter 43, but actually a paragraph of 42, that, uh, 52, I'm sorry, that, um, that, is the very central theme of the entire poem that we have from chapters 40 through chapter 66, where we have the Savior. And we see that um, with that, it's been called the Holy of Holies, the the fulcrum, that's the the thing that a lever holds that is set on, the fulcrum of the universe, the pivot of all history, the summary of the entire New Testament. It's quoted and referred to in the New Testament over 85 times. And so this is the central theme of the Bible, the the lamb that was slain and rose again. And we see the great passion more than any other passage in the Old Testament. It actually gives us a great body of uh, information and basis of knowledge of the entire New Testament where we have the suffering Savior, who is the Redeemer of all mankind. In the Old Testament uh, prophets, uh, it's been called the strange contradiction. And this is one of the passages that the Jews, and we have talked, we've had uh, chosen people and um, other groups of uh, Jewish ministries come through. In fact, we'll have one in March that's coming through, a lady who's going to Israel. And... uh, (coughs) Talking about one of the one of the key passages in trying to reach unsaved Jews for the Lord Jesus Christ is this passage, Isaiah 53, 
And so we see it is a great contradiction. And even some of the Jewish Bibles, the more liberal ones, you leave it out. They just can't put it together. And so they would not want to, to even think about it. And yet we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in 1948, that um, the one book that was complete, the scroll that was com- complete, there were fragments of others, but was, but was Isaiah. And guess what was contained in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And this was uh, written 300 years, or it was copied 300 years before the Lord Jesus. And of course, Isaiah lived 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that this was a, as we saw earlier, how that Isaiah uh, projected into the future. And he talked about, of course, he lived during the time of Assyria and how that, uh, uh, how that Israel was, or Judah was delivered from Assyria. But he even predicted the rise of Babylon and even the fall of Babylon to the Persians. And he even named a Persian king that would, uh, that would conquer a, 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 an empire that hadn't even risen yet. And he talked about that empire that hadn't even risen yet, taking the children of Israel into captivity. And the, uh, and the man, and he named the man who would be the conqueror of that, uh, of that empire that, uh, that would allow the children of Israel to come back to the promised land. And so all these things were in this. It's just fascinating reading, realizing that he is projecting and he's projecting far into the future. Now in saying that, <clears throat> we see that he's talked about this empire and so forth, but um, notice that he, he's talking to the predicted, you, you are going to go into captivity. And so let's just go back and get a little bit of outline or as we go into this, or a little bit of introduction, as you go back and he talked, he talked to them about their last days, even though they've been delivered from Assyria and from Sennacherib, they still have not turned from their sins. And so you go back to verse, um, chapter 52, and you look at verse 3. He says, For thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing, and you have redeemed, and you shall be redeemed without money. So here's the promise of redemption. You've sold yourself. Isn't that what men do? Isn't that what we do when we sell ourselves and our souls to the devil? We do it uh, and we we sell ourselves for nothing. In fact, uh, uh, it's amazing what people will do for a mess of pottage and just to, to, to gain a little bit of pleasure in life. You realize that... Uh, the Super Bowl tickets next year, next year they, or next week are starting off at eight to ten thousand dollars a ticket. I mean, folks, we are selling ourselves for nothing. I mean, uh, people would. Uh, I could think of a lot of things I could do with eight thousand dollars right now. I don't know about you. Most of you are so much more rich, richer than I am. No, no. I think we all feel that way. Everybody's got a little bit better than I do, but no. Uh, all of us could think of what we could do with that kind of money. But uh, notice he says, and we are redeemed without money, but, that, uh, but you shall be redeemed. Free salvation now he offers. Salvation is not by works. And it's, not by, it's not by works of righteousness which you've done. And also we know that uh, it's only through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. And he washed it. 
white as snow. Of course, he says, he goes on, he says, uh, he, he talks about how the Syrian had oppressed them in verse 6. He says, uh, and he says, and my name is blasphemed continually all the day. So you're still in your old sins in verse 5. And then notice he says in verse 6, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. One day I'm going to redeem you. But right now, as a nation, you're going into captivity. Now, how long was that going to be? They had no idea. That there was the gotcha. Um, <clears throat> but notice now the promise. And this is the... He goes all the way to, the, to what we're looking for, to the coming again of the Lord. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That word good news is the word gospel. Where we get the word gospel. He says, who uh, proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says, your God reigns. Well, folks, today I want to say God reigns. So I like what uh, I've told you a lot about. My, one of my great mentors when I was growing up or when I was going into the ministry was a guy named Walt Fremont. And uh, he had such a way about him with his uh, object lessons. And he would do all kinds of, but you never forgot the illustration. And uh, one time he was in a dignified church, and this is back when everybody wore coats and ties and or at least dressed up a little bit for church. But he was at the podium, and uh, he had come to church without a sock on one of the feet. And so he got, and all of a sudden he just threw his foot up on the, on the uh, pulpit. He was double-jointed, and he started talking to his foot. How, you know, everybody thinks that this is indignified, and your foot is so, you're so dirty and, and smelly and all. But you know, God says it's beautiful. Because, he just went into how beautiful are the feet of those who carry good tidings. He says, I'm here this morning to talk about the good tidings of God. Aren't my feet beautiful? You know, so, uh, of course, I'm not willing to do that. These size 14s, um, they might take up all the camera space, but, but you know. Uh, but there again, uh, that's what God thinks. God considers your feet beautiful if you're taking the promise of salvation to those who don't believe. And so are we not here to spread the good news? Good news, good news. Christ died for me, that little uh, child evangelism fellowship song. We, we pr pronounce the good news. And even in all the midst of the judgment that is coming, Isaiah is preaching the good news. That's the reason we call it the gospel of Isaiah. Folks, America, the United States and the world is getting worse and worse. Amen? I mean, it's getting pretty wicked out there. Uh, we see that if things don't turn around in, America, in the United States very soon, we are, gonna, we are already under the judgment of God. The hammer is about ready to come down. But you know what? God still reigns. And God still will save whosoever will. Isn't that the good news? This, my salvation doesn't depend, doesn't depend on, the, on the condition of my country. It depends on the condition of his promises, which are unconditional. Whosoever will may come. The great promise that we have that you can be saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Now in saying that, he goes on in verse 10. He says, the Lord has made his bare arm, uh, made 
bare his holy arm. Now that's a good old way of saying he's flexed his muscle. So God has flexed his muscle. We saw that uh, he, he spread the universe with his fingers. Just think what he could do with his arm. And he's promising Israel that no matter how bad things get, and they're going to get pretty bad for you, Israel, I still will preserve you. And that was 2,700 years ago. Has God still preserved them? And so we see that through all the different things that they've gone through, Israel is still his people. He says, now go on. He says, depart, depart. In verse 11, he says, get straightened out. Uh, depart from evil. So there's the preaching again. But in verse 12, he says, you shall not go out without haste nor uh, go by flight for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So notice he is your strong arm and he's got your back. <laughs> so God is the one who watches over Israel. He's already called them the apple of his eye. He's called them that they're the, those who truly believe. And of course, he's talking about the remnant here, those who truly believe, just like he's talking about the remnant today, of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, we shall be saved. And no one will pluck us out of his hand. God's got our back. Now, if that's true with a Christian, even with the, and we see the illustration through the Jew, no matter what Hamas or the United Nations or our government tries to do to the Jew, God will preserve his people. And the one thing that we must get out of our mind, and now I hope God will use us, and we hear all this anti-Semitism and everything going in the United States, and it's scary uh, from what we see because God says he'll bless those who bless Israel and he'll curse those who curse Israel. Now, I don't agree with everything that Israel does, but yet I don't want to see Israel pushed into the sea. Do you? No, I want, I want to see Israel saved. As Paul says, my heart's desire is that all Israel would be saved. That's the reason we have Jewish missionaries in. That's why we want to contemplate even taking on Jewish missions. We want to see Jews saved, do we not? And so we see that's the good news. Whosoever will, both Jew and Gentile, male and female, well, every walk of life, it, it, it's not the strata in which you live, high class, low class. It's not your education, but it's whosoever will, the left and the right, either you do or you don't, except the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Now in saying that, he's saying, yes, I'm going to, I have your back and I'm going to preserve you to the very end. But now he changes to a minor key. And we see from this point on through chapter 53, the 12 verses of chapter 3, 15 verses, he's going to talk about the suffering Savior and what he did to pay it all for you and me to have salvation. And so we see, first of all, as we look at this passage, we see the exalted. Now notice how that this is a mystery. And even... Uh, Peter tells us in First Peter, he said, of the salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully and who pro prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating uh, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They searched. Isaiah couldn't understand it. 
And John the Baptist, remember him? He said, are thou the Messiah or do we look for another? And even uh, John the Baptist, one of the last of the Old Testament prophets, he lived, in, he lived before the cross. He died before the cross. But he said that there's not been a greater man born among women, natural birth, than John the Baptist. But you and I, who know about salvation, the least in the kingdom of heaven, know more than him. We're greater than him. So if you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that he's coming again, you have more knowledge of prophecy than John the Baptist did. So is Jesus coming? did Jesus die for your sins according to the scripture? Was he buried? Did he rise again? As we will celebrate in a couple of months. And, is, and if he did, is he coming again? Then you know more about the mystery than Isaiah did, even though he was writing about it. Isn't that strange? There again, we see the, the inspiration of Scripture. The prophets did not always know what they were talking about. And yet, it always proved to be true. And so we see now in verse, 15, or verse uh, <clears throat> 13, he says, Behold my servant. Sir, servant, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the King. Yes, my servant shall deal prudently. Was he a wise man? he shall be exalted and extolled very high. Now, that is, again, one of those double-edged swords because as we go to John chapter 3 and Nicodemus is speaking to the Lord and we see in the, the passage, he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up Exalted? He's going to be lifted up on high. He's going to be put high on the cross. He, the cross was not low. It was high, so pe- a lot of people all around could see it. And he will be lifted up. <clears throat> and whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the Lord Jesus Christ, was he exalted? Yes, in more ways than one. As a serpent, that serpent, a serpent, a serpent is representative of Satan. Jesus became sin for us on that cross represented sin on the cross. So the serpent raised up on the cross shall, of course, that he will, so he shall draw men to himself. And so, but will he be exalted again one day? He's going to be raised up in a different way and he's going to be enthroned in heaven. And so, but what comes right after John 3, 15? John three sixteen, for God, what? So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, there's that word again, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So my servant will be lifted up. He's going to be exalted. He'll be extolled. People are going to look at him both ways. There are going to be people, people that look at him and just shake their heads. And we'll see that later on in chapter 53. And there are others that realize that he's, the, he's the Savior. And it's interesting that two people, he, he made his, uh, his grave with the sinners. And of course, there was a thief on the cross next to him. That the first person that was saved as a result of the cross was the thief. Second person saved uh, as a result of the cross was the man who put him there, the centurion that bowed down and said, surely this is the son of God. Did God forgive him for he knew not what he did? 
And so we see, yes, he's going to be extolled in more ways than one. And Isaiah didn't totally understand it. I think Isaiah in heaven understands it now, don't you? And so this was the mystery. This was that divine contradiction that they could not understand. And so we see just as you were, excuse me, just as they were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form marred more than the sons of men. Now, this is an interesting thing that I get there again. Every time you, you go through the Bible, you find something new. But um, think about Mary. Here she is at the grave. She's praying for the Lord, uh, for the Lord or to the Lord and, and wondering what in the world is happening on. And she appeared to him. And notice in, verse, in chapter 19 of John. Now, when she had seen, uh, said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. He was so marred that his facial recognition was totally altered. He, his, his beard was pulled out. That crown of thorns, and we, from what I understand, those thorns in Palestine that they would make, the, 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 each one of them were very stiff thorns that could be an inch long. And you can imagine that put on his head and then driven down with him hitting him in the head and plucking out his beard. I mean, he was so marred. I think about in 1955, there was a young teenage boy, 14 years old, by the name of Emmett Till that went down to Mississippi to visit his family or whatever. And when he was down there, he uh, must have uh, uh, gave attention to a woman that some people say that he uh, gave the wolf whistle or whatever they call it, uh, to a white woman. And two old redneck guys took him out and beat him half to death, well, beat him almost to death. Then they shot him and they put a big 75-pound fan around him and threw him in the river. Of course, a fisherman found him very shortly after. And when he was taken to the morgue, the funeral director wanted to not show his body. But uh, his mother, coming down from Chicago, said, no, I want them to see what they've done to my son. And I've seen pictures of that. You can go back and look in the history. You can't tell it's even a person. How sad it was that uh, man could be so cruel to man. And of course, that started the whole civil rights movement, and it should have. But you could imagine what it must have been for the Lord Jesus. Even, you know, we think about his hands, his pierced side, his feet. But even later on, remember, whenever eight days after they had seen the Lord Jesus, that uh, they sat around eating with him, and no one asked who he was. They couldn't even recognize who he was. Mary didn't understand or didn't understand until she heard that voice. So we see that the Lord Jesus was marred. And even, will he be like that in heaven? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what our Savior looks like. There's a story about a young man, a little boy, whose mother was, he considered ugly. And he never wanted her to come to any of his class functions or plays or anything as he was growing up. 
And when he got about 16 years old, his, um, his, he had a teacher that knew the history of the family. They had moved from another section of town. And she said, son, do you realize what your mother did for you? Back when you were a child, the reason you don't have a father, he got, he got killed in the fire. But when they were, your mother was pulling you out and putting a blanket around you and running out, her face literally melted from the heat. And she's borne those scars ever since. And the boy never had, and mother had never told him. And he went back home to his mother and said, Mom, I want you to be in my, I want, I want to show you off. You're beautiful. You know, when you really think about what God did for us, he might not be much to look at as far as human beings. But when we think about what he did for us, it makes him worth looking at, doesn't it? He's altogether lovely. When we think about the great sacrifice, I don't know, will he have, now of course, we know he had a redeemed body, and he will be perfect, but there again, we know that he'll have the nails in his hand. You know, Fanny Crosby sings about, I shall know him by the nails in his hand. Um, I wonder about his face. I won't know until I get there. Now, I know that when sometimes people wear, wear a beard, I saw a man recently that has always had a beard. Well, once he shaved, I didn't even recognize him. He walked right past me and laughed at me because I didn't recognize him. But uh, what would he look like in heaven? He wasn't much to look at here on earth. And so we see he was going to be marred. He was going to be destroyed as far as physical appearance was concerned. But then also, it turns right around and it says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Now, wait a minute, that's a priestly term. What the Old Testament priest would do, and whenever you brought that sacrifice, and it was laid on the altar, and some of the blood was taken and sprinkled as a as a symbol, symbolic. It was symbolic of the cleansing that God does. And we know that His blood shall uh, is atones for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace, as Isaac Watts sings. And so it is that the Lord Jesus. His blood sprinkles. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stain. So he shall sprinkle many people, many nations. And we see in the book of Hebrews in verse nine, chapter 9, verse 13, he says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled, sprinkling the unclean, sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God? How shall he cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So who sprinkles the throne of grace for us today? Whose blood atones for you and me today is the blood of the Lord Jesus. That was a beautiful picture in the Old Testament of what the Lord Jesus did for us on the cross. And so we see that, yes, his blood cleanses us from all sin. And then we see another thing here. He says that every, uh, he says in the verse 15, he says, kings shall shut their mouths at him. 
for what uh, for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider kings have kings been saved have been people from all walks of life have been saved through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and he quotes that in in Romans chapter 5 verse 21 is a direct quote of that passage and so we see that time and time again the picture that the Lord paints is fulfilled in the New Testament through our Lord Jesus Christ. This, this whole passage is the basis of the Gospels and of the entire New Testament. And so we see, first of all, and we see that, and now there's five different sections of this, of this great passage. And we're only going to be able to look at the, 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 the one that we've looked at and one more uh, this tonight, today. But notice, first of all, then in chapter 53, we see that he's rejected. And let's just read the entire passage, and then we'll come back. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. And excuse me, my pages are sticking together. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was put, he was, he has put him to grief. When he, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he numbered he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. 
So we see that our Lord Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of this very passage. We see that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. And this was, as we see in the passage, where he says, your God reigns. Satan thought he won, didn't he? Whenever he conquered him and put him on the cross. And yet, if Satan has, later on, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, if Satan had known that Jesus Christ would have risen from the dead, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so Satan played right into his hands 700 years after the Lord, or uh, it was written by Isaiah, what the Lord had said. This was all planned out. God was strong in salvation. He flexed his mighty arm. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone. That was strong. It It took a strong God to do what he did for you and I, didn't he? My God reigns. He didn't come to earth as a confused man, not knowing where he was and being despitefully used and and unjustly sentenced. Yes, that all happened. But it was because men who rejected him played right into God's hands. And my friend today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, God will have his will in your life. You will do, uh, in the end, what what, uh, what he has predicted. If you, as a country, if we turn away from God, we will be part of the judgment that God says comes upon those who reject him. I have used the illustration many times that whether I'm inside the will of God or outside the will of God, God is going to still use me. Now, I could decide that I'm just going to go off to one of the bars around here and I can get really drunk. And now, please don't ever think that. I, don't even imagine me not doing that. But if I did... And if I got out and weaved all over the road and killed somebody, which would be a tragedy, would it not? Especially, I mean, just how could I ever live that down? But did not I do something where God, God says that it is appointed unto man wants to die? And after this, the judgment. And even in my sin, I helped another man meet his appointment with God. Now, I don't like to think that way. I mean, it is so convoluted. How, who can know the mind of God? And yet God will use you. Well, you turn around, walk out. You turn off the internet. You don't want to watch this message. You don't want to think about God. Well, you could either be used by God or God will use you <laughs> against, or God will use even your defiance to fulfill his will. And so we see here that yes, were the Pharisees mean, vicious people? Most of them. Yeah. Were the Sadducees? Yes. And yet were Pharisees, some of them saved. It's kind of interesting as you read this. The Pharisees were conservative and they wanted to follow the Bible. And you see some of them getting saved. Nicodemus, Paul, and others. But you never see a Sadducee who rejected the word of God ever getting saved. Now, were they? I hope they were. But uh, never, not one Sadducee who rejected the word ever got saved. And so we see that uh, when they, he was despised, um, <clears throat> who has believed our report? Who's going to believe that we're looking for the King of kings and the Lord of lords? We're looking for that man on the white horse. We're looking for that great general of the army who's going to conquer the world and we as Jews are going to follow after him and Jerusalem is going to be the capital of the world. And when John the Baptist even said, are, uh, aren't you him? 
And they didn't understand. Who believes this report? We, we don't see how it can happen. Here he was born of, of, in a poor house. I mean, his family didn't even have enough for a lamb to sacrifice. They had to use two turtle doves. And there was no place in the end for him. And not only that, but um, he was in the world. And the world was made by him. And the world did not know him. They received him not. He came into his own, the Jews. And his own received him not. That's uh, John 1.11. But then again, what's John 1.12? But to as many as received him. To them gave you the authority to be called children of God. There's a lot of people out there calling themselves children of God who have no authority to do so because it comes through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that uh, who's believed this report? Who is this man of no means? He grew up as a tender plant. He's out there in the middle of nowhere. I mean, he, in Nazareth, why not Rome? Why not Jerusalem? Why not big city? Why not uh, in, a, a noble, uh, in a noble family? After all, he's going to be a king. And he's a carpenter's son. And whenever Nathaniel was approached by his brother, he said, uh, come and see the Christ. He said, come see the man from Nazareth. And he said, you know, can anything good thing come from Nazareth? That little town where uh, it's just a, it's, a, it's, a red, it's got red light districts and a bunch of bars and some trading posts. And here he is. Can anything come from that place? We got some towns in the United States that you think of, when you think of them, you think of evil. Well, that's the way Nazareth was. He was a nobody from Podunk. Who is he to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Who's going to believe that? He was despised and rejected of men. And we know that he grew up before him as a tender bush. Just, I mean, they didn't even know where he was. And then we see also that he was acquainted with grief. Now, that's a very important passage. He didn't feel sorry for himself, but he looked at mankind with pity. And folks, can we look at people who reject the Lord with pity? The rich young ruler, when he saw the Lord Jesus and would not call him Lord, would not call him God, the Lord looked on him and loved him, even though he was rejected, or even though he rejected his Messiah. But we also see the Lord many times, and I just pulled out two or three here in the passage. He said, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because he saw they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd or having not a shepherd. Folks, the world is out there lost. They're wandering around. Don't even, they don't even realize at what they stumble. And their solutions are worse than the problem. And yet we see that God has compassion on them. We can get mad about people's politics. We get mad about their actions. But do we really feel for them? Because they are blind and cannot see. And the Lord had compassion. He was acquainted with grief. We know that whenever he had preached to them and and 
Matthew 23. If you want a, a passage that really shows the Lord's fire message, oh, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you whited sepulchers, <laughs> you empty graves, in other words, <laughs> all these things he called them. And yet he went up on the mountain and he looked over Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent, uh, sent to her. How often I want to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I wanted to heal you. I wanted to be your protector. I wanted to put you under my wing and lead you, but you said no. And as a result, he knew the end from the beginning. He knew within a generation, those people who were rejecting the Lord, many of the mothers were going to have their babies ripped rip from their womb in one of the greatest sieges in all of history that brought more calamity and suffering to so many people were going to happen to Jerusalem in, 80, in, in, in the year 70 after the Lord's birth. He knew it was coming. Judgment is coming. And oh, I would have gathered you, but you would rather suffer judgment than to be put under my wing or to come under my wing. And also we see you know, one thing that the Lord did, uh, I would hate to be a funeral director around the Lord Jesus. Every funeral he went to, he messed up. I mean, the widow of Nain, here that she was, they were going, and the Lord raised him up, raised up her son right there. Jairus' daughter, they were already crying and they were getting ready for the funeral. He raised her up. And here, even after a guy is buried, he undoes the work of the pallbearers. And we know that Lazarus raised up, but here we see that the Lord cared about Mary and Martha. And he saw them, and he says, therefore the Lord, Lord saw her weeping, and he groaned within, he, he was troubled. Folks, God, God hears your weeping. God knows you. And if you're a servant of his, man or woman, but especially the women here, we see how tender he is with them. He knows all about our sorrows. He will guide till the day is done. And so, notice the Lord wept with them. He wept because they were weeping. Now, there's two ways that the Lord will weep. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, which means that we cause him sadness. Or we can allow him to join with us because he knows all about our sorrows. And he knows the feelings of our infirmities. And he empathizes and sympathizes with us. And he knows how to comfort because he's been there. He's done that. Aren't you glad you have a God like that? And so we see that the Lord Jesus <clears throat> was acquainted with grief. Didn't feel sorry for himself. He came to die for those he felt sorry for. Now that's as far as we can go this morning. But we're going to look at the suffering Redeemer. And then we're going to look at the lamb that was slain, the central theme of the entire scripture, the lamb that was slain. And we're going to look at the, at the vicarious atonement. Vicarious means he takes her place. Atonement means he paid for the sin. And it's all taken care of. And it was planned out by a strong God whose arm is strong and his hand is soft and it will save whosoever will may come. 
and he can save whosoever will come to him. But pastor, you don't know my background. If I came to your church, the, the uh, rafters will fall down and hit me. No, he came to save you. And you, he wants to make you a trophy of his grace, of what he can do with a person who turns from darkness to light and from the power of Satan into himself. Whosoever will may come. And that's still the true message today. And he will bear the sins of many. And he will cleanse those who will come to him. He sprinkles now the throne of grace with his blood that was shed for us on the cross of Calvary. Do you know him? Do you have the authority to be called a child of God? It's very simple. It's free of charge. You sold yourself for nothing, but you will be redeemed free of charge by the Lord Jesus Christ, whosoever will may come. Not by works of righteousness, which you've done. You can't clean yourself up to do it yourself. No, it's simply as just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Whosoever will may come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in sending the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you, Lord, as far as I know, within my immediate presence, everyone here. It's come time, time in their life where they realize they were sinners. They realize that they were lost as a sheep, as a, having no shepherd. And they turned from their ways. And they accepted you as their personal Savior. And as a result... You have paid the price, but without money. You have, you have taken care of the cost, but without treasure, in order for us to have eternal life. What more could you give than that which you gave in the shed blood of the Lamb of God? Thank you for what you've done and what you're going to do for all who believe. Lord, one day we know that we're going to see you again in your glory. Bless your people, Lord. Save those who are lost, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.